Well, good morning and welcome. My name is Mike Purcell, and I'm the associate pastor here at Restoration Road Church, and it's my joy and privilege to preach God's Word this morning. And it is our normal practice when it comes to preaching to preach through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And our practice of preaching through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is based on the conviction from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All of scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for us. And so it is our desire to preach the whole counsel of God. And just a few weeks ago, we began a new sermon series going through the Gospel of Mark. And we are going through the Gospel of Mark chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And one of the things that is important for us as followers of Jesus during times of trials and crisis is to keep our eyes on Jesus. It's easy for us to become distracted, to become overwhelmed. We can easily become anxious and fearful. But we want to be people who keep our eyes on Jesus and abide in him. In him we have comfort. In him we have peace. And in him we have hope. We can be certain that he holds our lives and our futures in his hands. And we can be certain that he will deliver on all of his good promises. So we began a sermon series going through the gospel of Mark. And we hope this sermon series will help us Keep our eyes on Jesus. And this morning we will be going through Mark chapter 1, verse 21, through chapter 2, verse 12. And when Jesus began his public ministry, he declared, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Pastor Sam explained how the phrase kingdom of God is loaded with meaning. But if we were to give a succinct summary of the phrase, we would say it refers to the perfect and glorious rule and reign of God. Sadly, we live in a world that is in rebellion against God, and we experience the consequences of our sin and rebellion on a daily basis. But we know that God has provided a way to forgive and remove the sins of his people in Jesus Christ, and he will one day bring about the full consummation of his glorious kingdom. When Jesus began to preach, he announced that the kingdom of God was beginning to break into this rebellious world. The Lord was beginning the process of bringing about the full consummation of his kingdom. In our passage this morning, we are going to read about several events in the ministry of Jesus that reveal his authority and his priorities. Moreover, these events provide us with glimpses of the kingdom of God. We are able to understand what the kingdom of God is like through the person and ministry of Jesus. So let's go ahead and read Mark chapter 1, verse 21, through chapter 2, verse 12. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? 
I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Our passage begins with Jesus entering Capernaum with his disciples and proceeding to the synagogue where he began to teach. The synagogues in the various towns were different than the temple. The temple was the central place of worship for the Jews, and it was the authorized place where animal sacrifices were offered by priests in Jerusalem. The synagogues were assembly halls or auditoriums in towns and cities that were designated as places of prayer 
and Torah study. The Torah would be read aloud in synagogues, and scribes would teach and explain the meaning of the Torah. But when Jesus arrived at the synagogue in Capernaum, he taught in a way that was noticeably different from the scribes who normally taught in their synagogues. He taught as one who had authority within himself. He did not appeal to other sources of authority. He did not appeal to other scribes or rabbis. He did not appeal to tradition. Instead, he taught authority as though he were the one who was authorized to teach the truth. He possessed authority within himself. And the audience was amazed by the authority that Jesus possessed in his teaching. But the people were not the only ones who took notice. When Jesus came teaching with this divine authority, we see that evil spirits were threatened by his presence. A man in the audience that day was tormented by an unclean or evil spirit. But isn't it interesting that he was in the synagogue? I wonder how long the man suffered from the oppression of that evil spirit with no help from the scribes. I wonder how long the evil spirit felt comfortable in that synagogue while lifeless religion was practiced. But things changed when Jesus arrived. When the power of God came in the person and ministry of Jesus, the evil spirit knew he was not safe. He knew he had no place to hide, and he knew he was exposed. So he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And it's interesting that he declares the title of Jesus so definitively, isn't it? No one else was saying this. At this point in time, no one else was referring to Jesus as the Holy One of God. But this evil evil spirit was able to declare the title of Jesus with accuracy. He rightly identified who Jesus is. But this is not to be mistaken with a profession of faith. William Lane describes the the declaration of the evil spirit as a defensive attempt to gain control of Jesus in accordance with the common concept of that day that the use of the precise name of an individual or spirit would secure mastery over him. In other words, the evil spirit thought that by declaring the precise name or title of Jesus, he could somehow control him or gain mastery and power over him. The evil spirit asked a poignant question. Have you come to destroy us? The evil spirit recognized he was in a real spiritual battle, and the answer to his question was yes. Jesus had come to destroy him, and this was the beginning. Using the precise name and title of Jesus was an utterly futile attempt to gain mastery over him. Jesus was having none of it. He gave a simple and direct command, be silent and come out of him. He did not need to use a magical formula. He did not need to use an incantation or a spell. He simply had to speak the command. The evil spirit was powerless against the authority of Jesus And thus he obeyed. The kingdom of God had arrived in the person and ministry of Jesus, and this was bad news for the dominion of Satan. Those who were present recognized the utter uniqueness of Jesus, 
amazed. They said, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. They had not seen something like this. They had not seen this kind of power and authority, whereby Jesus merely had to speak the word, and the evil spirits had to obey. On that day in the synagogue of Capernaum, Jesus demonstrated his authority in the way he taught and in his power over evil spirits. He possesses authority within himself to teach the truth, and he possesses supreme authority in the spiritual realm. And we need to understand that this is important for us. As followers of Christ, Jesus is our primary teacher. His voice needs to be the most important and authoritative voice in our lives. It's not just that he has authority when he teaches, it's that he has authority over us. We encounter a lot of voices in our lives. The voices of family members, the voices of friends, neighbors, coworkers, voices on social media, voices in the news media, voices from the entertainment industry, voices from the political realm. There are all kinds of voices and they're all trying to shape our thinking, our attitudes. They're all trying to shape our lives and the way we live. Brothers and sisters, whose voice carries the most weight in your life? Whose voice shapes your perspective, your attitudes, your thinking, your responses, your words and deeds? To whom are you listening? Jesus is meant to be the most important voice in our lives. We are to give ear to him. We are to listen carefully to what he says, to his commands. And our entire lives, the entirety of who we are, is meant to be shaped by him. We are to be continually conformed into the image of Jesus. What took place in the synagogue that day in Capernaum also provides us with comfort and confidence. We are all witnesses to various forms of evil in our world. And sometimes it is overwhelming to consider the power of these evil forces and the evil that is taking place all around us. But our king is the one who came to conquer evil and has the power to conquer evil. Brothers and sisters, the hordes of hell are no match for Jesus, and therefore we have nothing and no one to fear. As we might expect, the fame of Jesus began to spread throughout the region. People could not help but speak about what they saw and heard. News about Jesus spread rapidly. After the extraordinary event in the synagogue, Mark quickly takes us to the home of Simon, who we know as Peter. And Peter was a married man, and we read that his mother-in-law was sick. Jesus came in and healed her very quickly with no fanfare, and she immediately had the energy and strength to serve her guests. As we have seen in recent days, sickness and illness can be a scary thing for many people. There are times when we are powerless against sicknesses, illnesses, and viruses. But Jesus is not powerless against sickness. 
As he demonstrated with Peter's mother-in-law, he has power and authority over sickness. Therefore, as followers of Jesus, we do not have to fear any sickness, illness, or virus. And it's not because followers of Jesus will never get sick. And it's not because a a follower of Jesus will never die because of a sickness. Many godly men and women of great faith have become sick. And many have even died. We do not have to fear, not because we are immune to these things. But Jesus has power and authority over sickness. And when you trust in him, sickness will not have the final word. Jesus has authority over sickness. The two miracles of casting out the demon and healing Peter's mother-in-law preceded what took place that night when crowds of people came to the house to bring both people who were sick and those who were oppressed by demons. It did not appear that their motivation was to come and listen to Jesus the teacher, but rather they came to seek relief from Jesus the healer. Yet when they came, Jesus was gracious to heal the sick and cast out the demons. Mark reiterates that Jesus did not permit the demons to speak because they knew who Jesus was. It was not their place to identify him. It was not their place to reveal him. So Jesus did not allow them to do so. And what took place that evening revealed that Jesus' authority was not limited to a few individuals. Many were healed and many were set free. What took place the following morning revealed something about the priorities of Jesus. In verses 35 through 39, we read how Jesus got up early while it was still dark and found a place where he could be alone and pray. Three times in Mark's short gospel, we see Jesus going alone to pray. We see it here in this passage. We see it after he fed the 5,000 in chapter 6, and we see it in the Garden of Gethsemane in, in chapter 14. Clearly, prayer was a priority in the ministry of Jesus. His time alone in prayer demonstrated his dependence on the Father and his submission to the Father. When the disciples realized Jesus was not with them in the morning, they searched for him and seemed surprised that he had gone off to be alone. Jesus, what are you doing? This is your moment. This is your time. Your star is rising. Give the people what they want. What are you doing alone? What they failed to realize was the necessity and the priority of prayer in the life and ministry of Jesus. Bible scholar James Edwards wrote, The work of the Son of God is both an inward and an outward work. Jesus cannot extend himself outward in compassion without first attending to the source of his mission and purpose with the Father. And conversely, his oneness with the Father compels him outward in mission. The significance of Jesus' ministry consists not simply in what he does for humanity, but equally in who he is in relation to the Father. So prayer was essential to his ministry. We should not miss the significance of prayer in the life of Jesus. If it was a priority for Jesus, then it should be a priority for those, for those of us who are followers of Jesus. We are called to abide in Jesus, and prayer is an important way we do this. Prayer is an important way that we abide in him, that we are encouraged, that we are strengthened, that we are built up in the faith. Prayer is an important way that we walk 
according to the Holy Spirit. So I want to encourage you to spend time in prayer and not simply bringing your requests before the Lord. Though it is good to bring your requests before the Lord, it is good to spend time just praising Him for who He is. Praise Him for who He is. It is good to spend time to confess your sin. It is good to ask His help in order to walk faithfully with Jesus, in order to be a faithful witness in the world. It is good to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. It is good to pray for those who do not yet know Jesus. We want to be people who are faithful and diligent in prayer. We want to abide in Jesus as we make prayer a priority. When the disciples found Jesus, he did not return to the crowds as they seemed to think that he would. Instead, he told them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Jesus placed a high priority on preaching the truth far and wide. He came to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God so that many people would repent and believe the gospel. The Apostle Paul captured the importance of preaching in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15, where he wrote, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Preaching is necessary. Preaching is necessary so that people will hear the gospel. The gospel must be heard. People must respond to the gospel through repentance and faith, but in order to respond to the gospel, they must hear the gospel. In order to hear the gospel, people must preach the gospel. And so we see the, the priority of preaching the gospel in the ministry of Jesus. Prayer and preaching were priorities in the ministry of Jesus. In the final two stories in our passage this morning, Jesus demonstrated his unique authority in a couple of more ways. First, he encountered a man with leprosy. Leprosy was a widespread disease in Palestine, and the life of someone with leprosy was a difficult life. According to the law of God given to the people of Israel, a person with leprosy was regarded as unclean. In Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 through 46, the instructions for the leper were as follows. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. The person with leprosy was meant to make their appearance look as repugnant as possible. They had to clearly demonstrate through their appearance that they were unclean. Moreover, they had to shout out that they were unclean. And this disease required them to live in isolation. This was an extraordinarily difficult life. A life of embarrassment and shame. A life of isolation and loneliness. Again, James Edwards writes, Leprosy contaminated Israel's status as a holy people. Other illnesses had to be healed, but leprosy had to be cleansed. The skin disease robbed this man of his dignity and his community. Approaching Jesus in the way that he did was risky. He was breaking law and custom. 
he was probably aware that most people would treat his actions as a serious offense. But he was willing to take this risk because he believed Jesus could make him clean. He took a step of faith. He pleaded with Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus was not offended. He was not repulsed. He responded to this man's step of faith with pity. He made a point to touch him. And he said to the man, I will be clean. This was extraordinary because if this man who had leprosy had come into direct contact with anyone else, that person would have been unclean. In other words, his uncleanness was contagious. If he would have touched someone else or if anyone else would have touched him, that person would have become unclean, but not so with Jesus. When Jesus touched him, Jesus did not become unclean. Instead, the man became clean. Jesus had that kind of power. His holiness was more contagious than the man's uncleanness. Jesus was able to make him clean. He had the authority to make the unclean clean. Brothers and sisters, this is again good news for us. We are unclean in our sin. We are filthy in our sin. But Jesus came as the one who was able to cleanse us of all of our sin. He is the one who is able to make us pure. He is the one who is able to remove our sin from us as far as the east is from the West. He has the authority to make sinners like us clean. Finally, in the beginning of chapter 2, we see Jesus interact with a man who suffered from paralysis. Jesus was in a home and a large crowd gathered around him. As was his priority, he preached the word to the crowd. There was a large crowd gathered in the home, but in this case, his preaching was interrupted. His preaching was interrupted by a man with paralysis and his friends. They were desperate to reach Jesus, to get to Jesus. They were, they were desperate to get to Jesus because they had heard of his healing power. And this man with paralysis also lived a very difficult life, completely and utterly dependent upon other people. And so they were desperate to get to Jesus. The crowd was not going to prevent them. They got up and removed the tiles from the roof and lowered him in front of Jesus because for the first time this man had hope that maybe, just maybe, he could be made well. He was willing to take a step of faith. This was his chance. And when he, lowered, when he was lowered in front of Jesus, Jesus said, Son, your sins are forgiven. And I can only imagine what the paralytic and his friends were thinking. You do know why we came, don't you? Clearly, you can see my problem. Thank you for forgiving my sins, but about my legs. Can you do something about this? Certainly, their reason for coming to Jesus was obvious. It was so obvious, they did not even make a verbal request. They had heard that Jesus was able to heal, and they believed Jesus could heal him. But because they didn't make a verbal request, in this case, Jesus was able to speak first. The first thing he addressed was not the man's paralysis. Instead, he said, your sins are forgiven. You see, he did not address his physical condition first, but rather 
his spiritual condition. Jesus demonstrated incredible compassion and grace. Why do I say that? Though the man may have thought his greatest need was a remedy for his physical condition, Jesus knew that his true greatest need was a remedy for his spiritual condition. If Jesus healed the man of his paralysis, but did not forgive his sins that day in Capernaum, it would not matter to the man this day in hell. We might be tempted to think that our biggest problem is something other than our sin problem. We might be tempted to think that our biggest problem is a physical ailment or a financial hardship or a difficult relationship or something like the coronavirus. But this passage reminds us that our biggest problem is our sin problem. Without the forgiveness of sins, there is no peace with God. Our sin causes enmity with God. We are his enemies. Ephesians chapter 2 says we are by nature children of wrath. Our relationship with God has been destroyed, not because he is evil and wicked, but because we are evil and wicked. We have no one to blame but ourselves. Do you see how big of a problem this is? Do you know that this is your biggest problem? Do you know that your greatest need is a remedy for this problem? If we do not have peace with God, none of our other needs, problems, or worries matter. They don't matter. We desperately need peace with God. Jesus came to address our sin problem, and the good news for us is that he has the authority to address our sin problem. When Jesus told the man his sins were forgiven, the scribes were angry. These religious teachers thought, who does this man think he is? He is blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. The question they asked was, who can forgive sins but God alone? In regard to the matter of who has the authority to truly forgive a man's sins, they were right in saying that God alone has that authority. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read about the great sins of Israel's king David. Israel's king David committed the sin of adultery when he took a woman named Bathsheba and lay with her. She became pregnant. In order to cover up his sin, he eventually intentionally had her husband killed in battle. He was then confronted by Nathan the prophet. The Lord sent Nathan the prophet to confront King David in his sin, and eventually King David was convicted of his sin and grieved and brought to repentance. And in Psalm chapter 51, we read his prayer of repentance. And one of the things that stands out in this prayer is when he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This is the prayer he prayed to the Lord. Against you, you only have I sinned. How could he possibly say that? Clearly, he sinned against Bathsheba by causing her to be unfaithful to her husband. Clearly, he sinned against her husband Uriah by stealing his wife and then giving his death sentence to the commander Abner. Clearly, he sinned against all the people of Israel by abusing his authority for his own selfish purposes when he should have been leading his men into battle in the first place. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? Really? 
I do not believe David was saying that he had not wronged any of these other people, but he was emphatically saying that all of his sin was ultimately and finally against God. When Jesus looked to the paralytic and said, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven, he was making an extraordinary claim. He was saying, all of your sins are ultimately and finally a transgression against me, and therefore all of your sins are mine to forgive. Jesus was unequivocally making a claim to have authority that belongs to God. That is why the scribes said, he can't do that. That is blasphemy. Who does he think he is? God? Of course, the answer is yes. They were right in saying that only God can forgive sins. But they were wrong on the identity of Jesus. They missed who was right in front of them. Jesus has the authority to forgive sins because he is God, and therefore all sins are ultimately and finally against him. They are his to forgive. Friends, your sins are his to forgive forgive the response of jesus to the disbelief of the scribes is actually quite amazing you see the creator is not obligated to prove himself to his creatures we are obligated to him he is not obligated to us we answer to him he does not answer to us yet what do we see here though he was not obligated to prove himself he did so for our sake listen again to what he said in verse six but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He looked at the paralytic and said, Rise, pick up your mat, and go home. And immediately the man was healed of paralysis and indeed picked up his mat and went home. Do you see that the purpose of the healing miracle was to convince his audience and convince the hearers of the gospel that he did have the authority to forgive sins? He made an extraordinary claim, offering incredible hope, and he had the authority to do so. But because we are slow to believe, He provided convincing evidence for our sake, not his. Friends, this is good news for us. Jesus has authority to forgive our sins. And when Jesus told that man, your sins are forgiven, he was essentially telling him, I will die for you. The reason being that we see in the scriptures that in order for sins, in order for an atonement to be made for sins, there must be a sacrifice. In the Old Testament, the people of God offered sacrifices to the Lord, animal sacrifices. There needed to be a shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. But none of those sacrifices truly changed the hearts of the people. A better sacrifice had to be offered in order for sins to be forgiven. And Jesus came in order to offer the perfect sacrifice once and for all, for the forgiveness of our sins. So when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, when he said that on that day, he was saying, I will die for you. When he went to the cross, he gave his life for our sake. He took the punishment we deserve for our sins so that we can be forgiven of our sins and restored to God, so that we can have peace with God. He went to the cross to address our biggest problem, our sin problem. So now everyone who repents of their sins and believes in Jesus will be saved. 
Everyone who repents of their sins and believes in Jesus will receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. The wonderful and extraordinary thing about Jesus is the way he used his authority. Unlike so many today, he used his authority for our good. He used his authority to free people from oppression. He used his authority to bring healing to those who were sick. He used his authority to make clean those who were unclean. He used his authority to forgive the sins of sinful people. When we belong to Jesus and his glorious kingdom, then sickness does not have the final word. Disease does not have the final word. Evil does not have the final word. And death does not have the final word. Jesus provided us with glimpses of the kingdom. And the book of Revelation provides us with a beautiful picture of the kingdom when it will be fully realized. In Revelation chapter 21, verses uh, 1 through 5, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Jesus gave us glimpses of his kingdom. There will be no evil. There will be no sickness or disease. And our sins will be completely and finally removed from us. What a beautiful glimpse of the kingdom. What a wonderful and glorious future that awaits us who trust in Jesus for their salvation. If you are not a Christian, our greatest hope and desire for you is that you will know Jesus. That you will come to trust in him for your salvation. You and I have a big problem, and it is our sin problem. Our sin separates us from the Lord. It separates us from God who created us. He made us in his image to know him, to love him, to enjoy him, to obey him, and to glorify him. But sadly, every single one of us has sinned against God, and because of our sin, the only thing we deserve is judgment. If God only gives us what we deserve, we receive judgment. But God in his loving kindness and his mercy has provided a way for us to escape the judgment we deserve and instead receive the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of eternal life. And he did so at great cost to himself. He did so by providing Jesus Christ as a sacrifice once and for all. So now everyone who believes in him will be saved. Friend, if you're not a Christian, we urge you, repent of your sins, believe in Jesus, and be saved. If you are a Christian, fix your eyes on Jesus. Look to Jesus. And remember that we belong to him and we belong to his kingdom. Remember that we have a glorious future that awaits us. Yes, we live in a world that is riddled with sin and pain, trials and crisis. But none of these things will have the final word. Jesus will have the final word. And we will one day enjoy being with him in his glorious and perfect kingdom. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, you are awesome. You are worthy of all praise and glory and honor. It is our joy to worship you. We thank you and we praise you for sending Jesus into the world to save sinners like us. We have all sinned against you. We have all rebelled against you. Yet in your love and your kindness, you have provided a way for us to be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice upon the cross. We thank you that he was willing to give up his body and shed his blood so that we might be forgiven and saved. We pray that you will help us to keep our eyes on Jesus. Help us not to live lives of fear, but help us to live lives of faith. Help us to be confident in you. Help us to put our hope in our future with you. We thank you that you have provided a way for us to belong to you in your glorious kingdom. We pray that we will live here and now as citizens of your kingdom. And we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.